Hello and welcome. Welcome to part three of the Great Real Estate Reset of 2021. In this session, what I want to share with you is some of the fundamentals of strategic planning. Now, real estate is a business. And as a business, you've got to start running it like a business. You've got to start thinking about it like a business. And consequently, you've got to understand some basic business principles. And what I've done in this session is I've, I've, I'm going to highlight the property genius formula. Now, this is the, the, the way that you need to be investing in real estate. This is what works. This is what you need to implement. And every single part of it is non-negotiable. There is no middle ground. There is no a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You've got to get this stuff right. Now, over the next three uh, parts to this series, I'll be going through different segments of the, uh, the Property Genius Blueprint. Now, the first session that I'm going to share with you right now is a little bit of a snippet of what you need to put in a place from a fundamentals perspective. Now, there's lots of Lots and lots of learning here, lots of charts, lots of other things to, to do. So look, if you, if you want to have a look at all of my slides, you want to, to really um, understand how this stuff comes together in a great deal of detail, then I really suggest you go across to uh, the website, which is iloverealestate.tv. And not only will you get access to a whole lot of free stuff there, you'll actually be able to see me do this um, in, in video form. So you'll get all of the things that I'm talking about when I start writing on the board and things like that. But anyway, look, enjoy. Um, I know you're going to pick up a lot out of it regardless. And uh, I'll see you on the other side. Okay, let's get into the next session. Now, the next session I want to go into is really looking at a fast track to success. And the way to do that is, of course, to follow a proven formula. What is working? What has worked in the past? What is working now? What, do, what can you do that you know is going to have whatever result? So you're not just flying blind. You're not um, having to go through trial and error in order to get a result. This is really what, what education is about. Not having to do the trial and error yourself, but having a, a process that, that you know is going to get X, Y, Z as a result. It's a proven process. So that's why in I Love Real Estate, and I've been doing this a very long time. And as I said, you know, I really started this back in my accountancy practice days when I replaced my income. And then everybody wanted to know, well, how'd you do that? What did you do? What, how did you make that happen? And I started teaching each one of my clients and, you know, then they became bigger and bigger and numbers and numbers and whatever else. And I'm, I'm here today. Um, I don't have the accountancy practice anymore, but I have a whole team of accountants uh, right around this Australia that can assist and help you along with the lawyers and the finance strategists. I've got a massive team behind me, professional team, as well as an in-house team. I mean, my amazing Michaels, um, in, in, uh, that you've got two of them here today, um, and an amazing, um, you know, back-end office with, you know, Christy, you've got today, and, um, you know, all of the advisors, and then the coaches, and the, and the trainers, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of people to help you get that success. But they all follow the one formula because this is what counts. So let's get into that. There are three fundamentals. There are three fundamentals that you must have as part of your, uh, your formula, okay? Three fundamentals. The first one is the foundational blueprint. Now, there is no... 
um, successful building, relationship, empire, company, or even country that is possible without a solid foundation. So when I say solid foundation here, what I'm talking about is having the legals right and the legal contracts and you know the legal agreements that you have to have in place. I'm talking about the financing, not just can I get the money from the bank, but actually how to structure your financing so that no bank can take advantage of you, so that you're never exposed, so that you're not cross-securitized, so that you have buffer zones in place, so you've got split facilities in place. All of these things go into the way that you actually structure your debt. You've got all of the taxation issues, you know, all of the, 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 the way that you structure your portfolios and the tax um, minimization effects that you have there without actually, um, you know, having to negatively gear and those sorts of things. The debt management, the uh, asset protection, the way you own your, your, your properties so that you are removed from litigation. This stuff is vitally important. If you don't get these fundamentals right, you can be building properties and, you know, owning properties and all the rest of it. And the whole thing can be lost if you don't get this stuff right. And that we are the only ones in Australia that, that go to the depth of, of across all of these areas because you must have this right. This is part of your business plan. How to do a business plan, how to do Gantt charts, how to actually set yourself up so you know, not with a, not with a guess and a hope and a wing and a prayer, but you know in 10 months time, I'm going to be in this position. In two years time, I'm going to be in that position, et cetera. Because you've done the work and you, you know how to do that. You've done the feasibility. You've done the reverse feasibility. You've done the market analysis. All of that comes into this. So there's a huge amount of learning inside this circle, just there. And I'll, I'll touch on it a little bit this morning. I obviously can't do it all, but I'll touch on a couple of things that I think are, are pretty important for you to get your head around. But there's a whole lot more just here. You've got to have cash flow. I've been on about this all morning. Cash flow gives you lifestyle. Cash flow gives you choice as to how you spend your time, what you do. Cash flow buys you freedom. Cash flow buys back your time. If you don't have cash flow, you'll be working your little tushy off just to make ends meet. You might have, you know, millions and millions of dollars worth of assets. You're asset rich, but you're cash flow poor. This is what gives you a life. <laughs> You've got to have cash flow. Many of you haven't been brought up with this as a philosophy. You know, the ability to be able to create an income stream that supports your life without you having to trade your time for it. But this is very crucial to you building a successful empire that you can live on for the rest of your life. And of course, the other one is growth. Now, you need all three of these because growth means that you are able to continue to invest you, and, and build that sizable empire that has longevity. Because if you don't have the, the growth as part of your overarching business plan, then you can only invest to whatever money you've got now. There's no upside. Or you're sitting there waiting for a market to move that you can't control. You've got to have a controllable growth, manufactured growth. So you know precisely what your properties are going to be doing and what they're going to be worth in X period of time because you've done it. 
You've made it. You haven't relied on a market giving it to you, even though the market is with you right now. You're, it, that, that's kind of like a double whammy. If you just have the foundations and the wealth, and, and sorry, and the growth, you'll have some wealth. You will. But you're going to be working your tushy off, like I said. If you have the foundation and cash flow, you'll get so far on the money you've got, but you won't be able to continue to grow it. And then you'll get stuck. And you'll, you'll, you'll be stalled for maybe 10 years before you can move forward. And if you just have these two, the whole thing can get crashing down. You know, you, the, if you don't have those foundations in place, you're going to be inefficient. You're going to be at risk of losing the lot. And you're going to be paying huge amounts of tax. You've got to have the three together. And it is the three together that give you that money for life. Now, as part of this, there are nine major accelerators that go around each of these, three for each one. Beyond that, there are a multitude of multipliers, okay? But the nine accelerators are strategically um, in place here for a reason because it's a matter of putting in place all of these nine accelerators to make sure that you've got these three fundamentals in the, in the middle here working for you to give you the money for life. And all of this is non-negotiable. You cannot miss one bit out because if you do, you won't achieve your, your objectives. You won't achieve where um, you need to be. You just, you won't get there. You're either going to run out of money to live on. You, you know, you can't move forward. You've got to continue to work. You're going to, you're going to not have the, the, the growth to actually be able to keep investing and continue to build that portfolio or the whole thing's going to come crashing down. Every single one of these nine accelerators um, must be in place in order for you to have that. So what I'm going to do in this little session here is I'm going to pick one of each and I'll just give you a little bit of a snippet of information about each one of these so that you can see the depth and the, 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 the knowledge and the, um, the importance of having that formula right. So the one I'm going to pick when I talk about foundation is actually protect your empire. This is the one that I'm going to talk about today. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of a snippet, a little bit of an introduction into, into this area. There is a huge amount more that you need to know and learn, but it'll be interesting for you this morning anyway. So protect your empire. I'm first of all going to ask you three questions and we're going to answer them like a traffic light. So if you, are, you know, there's red means not, haven't got it sorted. Amber means I got some things, but not all. And green means, yep, got it all sorted. So first thing is, my first question to you is this. Do you own your investment property or properties in your own name? Now, if the answer is yes, you are red. So give it to me in the chat room. Are you red, amber or green? Red, amber or green? Okay, lots of red I can see there, Michael. A sea of red. Next question. Do you have your home protected with either structure and or friendly debt? If you don't, you are red. Red, red, red everywhere I can see. Next question. <coughs> Do you have your assets and your liabilities isolated and quarantined from each other and you? And if you don't understand the question, you're definitely red. So give it to me. Red, amber or green? Red, amber or green? Wow, sea of red. What do you reckon, Michael? 
it's an absolute sea of red. You know? There is the occasional green, and, and I think that uh, you, you know exactly why, who those, <laughs> those, those green ones are. I can see the names. I know the names. <laughs> Familiar They're names. Students. That's a student. There goes a green student. Yep. Yep. There we go. All right. So why are these questions important? Well, if you're going to achieve this idea of financial freedom, whatever that is for you, you're going to need to build an empire and you're going to need to protect it. So what's an empire? An empire is, um, what is empire building? Basically, it's, it's a different thing for everybody. It's not going to be the same thing for you as, you know, your next door neighbour. For some, it is simply owning their own home and having enough income to, to comfortably retire. And that's okay. For others, it's going to be he who dies with the most properties wins. That's not my definition, but for some people it might be. Um, for some, it's about intergenerational wealth and leaving an empire for the kids. That's, that's intergenerational wealth and creating an empire that you know your kids and your grandkids and everybody else can, uh, can actually benefit from. And that's important to some. When you look at the wealthiest people in Australia and you look at either how they earned their money or how they hold their money, all of these yellowy orange ones here are all either made out of real estate or hold their money in real estate. Just look at them. You know, um, even though Gina Reinhart, we've got here mining, but she really got it from her dad. She, her holdings are all in, in, um, uh, in property. Uh, you know, number four down here is a property developer. Um, Twiggy Forrester, whilst his is in mining, he holds his, his money in real estate, mainly in agricultural real estate. Number seven, Harry, he's the uh, is a, um, Meriton uh, developer. Uh, again, mining down here, Clive Power, but again, it's the holdings in real estate. And the last two are uh, Lowy, who's in shopping centres and property development. So property development and property generally is, is a major component in wealth. You cannot deny it. it. It has to be a major component in your wealth strategy, even if you're a hardcore share person. Property has to feature in there. And they all have that one thing in common. They all have that, that real estate as their core. Now, if we look back at the age-old question of shares versus property, you know, when you take leverage into account, property is going to outperform shares every single time, even if you're leveraging in shares. But even over the long term, it still outperforms. And if you look back in history, 90% of the world's millionaires have been created through real estate. 90% of them. Now, in recent years, it's actually technology, technology that's taken over the, the number one uh, place, like Atlassian. We saw that, that, uh, that um, chart there before. But for the average investor, it's real estate that's going to do it. And particularly in Australia, I showed you this before, we are property-centric in this country. And because of that, it's real estate that is going to have the most impact. So how do you do that? Well, basically, we've got to build that empire to get your financial freedom. Just oh. the house we just saw. Know what that is, Michael? Can you fix that? There we go. <laughs> um, and it's following that formula that'll actually build this empire for you to give you that financial freedom. So, let's have a look at how we can actually do that. But first of all, I want to have a look at a few frightening statistics that are there when we start talking about. Uh, you know, litigation and, and how rampant it is in this country. 
there were 12,450 bankruptcies in the 20 financial year. So the 2019-2020 financial year, 12,000 bankruptcies. There were debt arrangements of a further 8,000. 2020 to 2021 financial years, that's the one that we're in right now, are tipped to be even higher than those that we saw in the GFC period of time. The average business owner in Australia gets sued about three times in their lifetime with greater than 50% chance of a devastating lawsuit that'll completely wipe them out. One out of every four people on average gets sued. There is a lawsuit happening in Australia every minute. Oh my God. Statistics show, now this is an American statistics, statistics show that somewhere between 36 to 53% of small businesses are involved in at least one litigation in any given year and 90% of all businesses are engaged in litigation at a, any given time. That's an American one, the bottom one. The others are Australian. Isn't that crazy? Who is horrified by that? Give it to me in the chat room. Who's horrified by those statistics? Yep, lots of you. And you should be. But not just horrified, you should be cautious and recognise that you need some help in this area. So when we get to Australia, Australia is the second most litigated country in the world. America's first, and then Australia comes in second. Now, New South Wales is actually the third most litigated country in the world. California, sorry, Texas is first, California is second, and good old New South Wales comes in third. They're scary. The areas of litigation mostly come from business ownership, property ownership, defamation, and personal actions involving motor vehicles. So let's deal with that. Let's start with business ownership. If you're going to go off and, and buy a coffee shop, most of you will go to your accountant and go, oh, look, I'm buying this coffee shop. What structure should I put it in? Unfortunately, the, uh, the advice that you get is not always accurate. So most accountants will say, I'll oh, just pop it into your own name. You know, when it gets a bit bigger, then we'll move it into something else down the track. Oh my God. Anything that happens in that business, all of your personal assets are at risk. Your home, your car, your caravan, everything's gone. Some accountants will say, pop it into a partnership. That's even better because you can split the income between you. It's great for tax. It doesn't cost anything to set up. Do that. Worse, because if one of you goes down, you both go down. So not only one of you is, is, is able to continue to, to move on and invest and recover from whatever's happened. And you're joint and severally liable for the actions of each other. So if, if, you know, even if you and I go into business together, you do something wrong, I'm joint and severally liable for that. You know, that, that's totally wrong. Some accounts will say pop it into a company. That's what you need to do. And a company is a separate legal entity. That is true. It separates the liability away from you and your personal assets. The difficulty with a company is that in a company, they pay double capital gains tax. So if you've got an appreciating asset, you're going to pay double the amount of tax as anybody else. Why? Because they don't get the 50% exemption for owning an asset for more than 12 months. Consequently, they pay double the amount of tax. So there's a lot of misinformation out there. So what you know, we, we look at all of these things as to what's there. Sole trader, even though you've got an ABN, it's still, it's, it's still you. You're still a sole trader. Partnerships even worse. Companies good, but they pay double capital gains tax. Trusts, look, trusts have their place. They definitely do in the ownership structure. And I want to show you how to use them in a minute. 
But let me tell you a few stories first. In Australia, we are underinsured. Now, you might not get the impact of this, but I want to tell you a story. I had um, a client in my accountancy practice days, and he owned a sheet metal fabrication business. So it was making air conditioning, ducting in big buildings. And he had a fire, and I did a bit of damage, a bit about $80,000 worth of damage, which, you know, is not huge in the big scheme of things. He was insured for three hundred, dollars so you go, no big deal, right? But you see, he was insured for three hundred. dollars When the assessor came out and did his assessment, he came out and said, well, you should have been insured for five hundred, dollars So you're two-fifths underinsured. So what that means is of his $80,000 claim, he only got paid three-fifths of it, but that's not the end of it. The landlord sued him for two-fifths damage to his building. The next-door neighbour's landlord sued him for two-fifths damage to his building. The next-door neighbour's tenant sued him for two-fifths damage to his stock. All in all, he ended up having to borrow $120,000 against his line of credit on his home in order to be able to um, pay out all of these two-fifths. Now, I can guarantee you, some of you listening to this call today, on your home, on your investment properties, or on your businesses, you are going to be underinsured and you need to rectify that immediately. So write this down. Make sure that you are insured to at least replacement value. Make sure you're insured to at least replacement value. Another story I want to tell you is about um, separation of assets, of business assets in particular. So again, it was a, a couple on the North Shore in Sydney. Now, this couple, they, they owned an earth-moving business. Now, in the earth-moving business, they owned their home together in their own names. They owned the business together in partnership because that's what their accountant told them to do. They owned their uh, land where they ran the business from with all the trucks and drops and excavators, and then they owned all the equipment, the trucks and drops and excavators, et cetera, in, in their own names. So everything's owned in their own names. One day, they're happy digging away, and they dug up the main fibre optic cable that connected Sydney to Canberra. Now, you may not care if Canberra got cut off, but Canberra cared. $20 million worth of caring. That was the lawsuit. So this couple went bankrupt. They lost everything because, you know, they owned everything in their own name. What they should have done is this. The home, put it in the wife's name. There are other ways to protect that asset and still get the capital gains tax exemption. The business, put it in a separate legal entity. The land where they ran the business from, separate legal entity. The traps and drops and excavators, separate legal entity. So the, the business rents the land. The business hires the equipment. The business digs up the fibre optic cable. How much do they lose? Give it to me in the chat room. How much do they lose? What do you reckon they lose? How much do they lose if they're structured the way I just said? Lots of nothings, a few everything. They lose nothing. Well, they lose a $250 registered business name. So they stop trading as Bob's Bobcat today and they start trading as Billy's Bobcat tomorrow because they still own their land. They still own their trucks and drops and escalators. They still own their home. All they've lost is a registered business name with an ABN. Great, we'll get another one. This is how the top end of town structures themselves. And you've got to wake up. If you're in business, it is vitally important that you structure yourself correctly so that you don't have everything exposed. Let's look at the uh, property. Now, that's just a picture I pulled off the internet, but I want to tell you about a story about this. And in this particular case, there were two cases very similar to each other. One was in Victoria and one was in Queensland. Two young couples go out to buy their first investment property. Um, they go to their accountant, both accountants go, yep, great job, guys. You know, you're doing a bit of a renovator. Pop it into your own name so we can claim the negative gearing. Fantastic. Okay. 
get a pest and building inspection report. Pest, no problem. Building, um, in the building uh, inspection report, the one in Victoria said it's got a rickety balcony, doesn't um, meet code, it's unsafe, you need to fix that. Great, we'll do that. One in Queensland, the back step going up into the top, into the, into the kitchen was too high, didn't meet legal height anymore, it did at the time, doesn't now, needs to get fixed. Great, we'll get onto that. Both couples don't get around to fixing the things. Both couples put tenants in, both tenants have an accident, both tenants sue, both tenants win, both couples go bankrupt. Why? Because in both cases, they knew about the problem. They couldn't evidence that they had taken any action to rectify the problem. Consequently, they were deemed to be criminally negligent and insurance doesn't cover you in the case of criminal negligence. They lost everything. Now, ignorance doesn't save you in the court of law, you know? And, and that was the case. You go, they didn't have to do that. Had they isolated the investment property away from everything else, they might have lost the deposit that they put in, but they wouldn't have lost the rest of it. Let's have a look at another one. Uninvited guests. <laughs> look, I've been a leading expert in this area for a very long time. I've actually started speaking on stage, teaching accountants how to teach their clients about asset protection. I've written books on it. I've written manuals on it. And a lot of people come to me after the event and there's nothing I can do for them. It's why I spend the time talking to you guys to get it right in the first place. So this guy comes to me, he's lost his wife to cancer a few years earlier and he wanted to give something back to the Cancer Foundation who had helped him and his wife through the whole ordeal. And so rather than just make a donation, he bought this piece of land in the hinterland, overlooked the ocean and he was going to name it after his wife because he's going to make, build this uh, respite centre so people going through chemo could, could go there and eat organic food and be educated and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, um, he was about three quarters of the way through building this property when the young builder was so enamoured by how amazing this property was, he took his girlfriend out on a weekend to show her the property. Look, a building site is, you know, is no place for visitors, full stop. But his girlfriend took her three-year-old with her. And a building site is certainly no place for a three-year-old. The kid ran around, did what kids do. She fell down a three-metre drop onto a concrete slab. The child is injured. She's going to need ongoing medical attention for the rest of her life. There is no good side to this story. Everybody loses. The guy goes to, the guy's being sued by the mother and the child for, for money. Um, the, he goes to every barrister in the state and every barrister gives them the same advice. Mate, you're going to have to settle out of court. If you go to court, you're going to lose and you'll, you know, you'll probably end up going bankrupt because you'll have a legal bill you won't even be able to jump over. So they made a, a, a final um, payment to the woman. They sold off about three quarters of the property. Didn't ever finish the house. It got sold half finished, fire sale. The Cancer Foundation never got the property. Everybody loses. Now, why didn't the insurance cover him? Did he have insurance? Yes. Why didn't it cover him? Had the builder been injured, he would have been fine. But you see, that child was an uninvited guest and his public liability insurance did not cover uninvited guests. Now, write that down. Public liability needs to cover uninvited guests. You need to make sure that you've got that covered. Um, it, you know, it'd be the same if you had a burglar break into your house, slip on a kid's toy and break their back, they'll sue you for the house. In fact, it happened on the Gold Coast. Um, one of my students who's a student now, he wasn't when this happened, he went off to dinner. Uh, he keeps a, he's got a dog, he's a rottweiler, keeps it in the house. Uh, the burglar breaks in, the dog attacks the burglar and bites off his index finger. The burglar faints at the sight of his own blood. Um, when the guy comes home from dinner, he finds the, the dog's got him bailed up in the, in the hallway, you know, bleeding and whatever else. And uh, he's like, good dog, good dog, calls the police, calls the ambulance, takes him away. Doesn't think anything more about it. 
until about six or eight weeks later, he served some papers. He's being sued by the burglar. Damages, punitive damages, pain and suffering, medical expenses, and loss of future income because he's unable to work in his chosen profession. Unbelievable, right? So, so yeah, and he went again, he goes to the, to the barristers and they said, look, just, just cut him a deal, give him a settlement, he'll go away. Ended up paying him something like $50,000 to get rid of this guy. But, you know, that could be you. So make sure you're covered for uninvited guests in your public liability insurance. But defamation, Sydney has just become the defamation capital of the world. It's incredible the amount of lawsuits in this space. Um, a dentist down in Melbourne did some work on some teeth. The patient didn't like it, so he made some disparaging statements about the work on, on uh, social media. The dentist sued and won hundreds of thousands of dollars in defamation. A teacher had some disparaging statements made about her for bullying um, by her students. So she showed the parents, she sued the parents of the children and has won millions of dollars in defamation. And her ex-wife made some disparaging statements about her ex-husband on Facebook. Well, who doesn't for goodness sake? But anyway, um, <laughs> he sued and won tens of thousands of dollars in defamation. So it's not, it's not the big celebrities um, you know, the majority of lawsuits in the defamation area are ordinary people doing ordinary things. And when it comes to motor vehicles, personal actions involving motor vehicles, if you drink, drive, if you forget to register the car, forget to insure your car, forget to renew your license, drive somebody else's car that they forgot to register or insure, ran out last week, I'll fix it up next week. You know, if you have bald tires, if you have too many speeding fines, you haven't told the insurance company about, if you have tires that are date stamp of greater than five years, you have an accident and hurt someone, they can sue you for everything that you've got in your name. So it affects everybody. Nobody is exempt from this. It's not just business owners. And the key here is separation. You want to be able to separate your assets away from each other, away from liabilities, and away from you, because you interact with the public. Now, if you've got existing assets, that you're sitting on and you're going, oh my God, I own all these assets in my own name, what can I do? There are measures that you can put in place to protect existing assets. They're not as good as getting it set up correctly in the first place, uh, but they don't incur stamp duty and capital gains tax. Um, trying to fix things down the track, people will make mistakes and they'll often, often do those sorts of things. So what have we got available? We have sole trader. You know, uh, that means that you're on your own. You might have an, an ABN and you think you're a business person. No, you're not. You're in business as a sole trader. It's you doing it. So all of your assets are up for grabs. Partnerships, worse. Companies, good, but they pay double capital gains tax. Trusts, I'm going to go through three types of trusts with you now. So you can get an understanding of trusts. There's a lot of different types of trusts, but I'm going to go through three of them with you. And a superannuation fund is simply a type of trust. So come over here to the board. Now, the first type of trust that I want to talk to you about is a discretionary trust. So in a discretionary trust, as the name suggests, it has discretionary powers. A trust is simply a book of rules that says how things work. The manager of the trust is called the trustee. Now, the trustee can either be a company where you've got director or directors of the corporate trust as of the, of the trust, or you can have individual or individuals. Now, they look after the asset of the trust for and on behalf of the ultimate owner of the trust who are called the beneficiaries. Oh, getting carried away there. Beneficiaries. There we go. 
Now, most discretionary trusts in Australia are family trusts. They don't have to be, but most of them are. So in a standard family trust, you might have mum and dad. Now, you don't need to be a couple. You don't need to be married. You don't need to have children. A single person can have a discretionary trust provided somewhere, somewhere in the world, someone is alive in a three-generational circle. So that means your, your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids, if you've got any, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, if they're still alive, sisters, aunts, great-aunts, cousins, uncles, nephews, everybody else in between could, at the discretion of your trustee, receive any income or capital at any point in time. Now, you might go, well, this is all very well, um, but I don't want my sister-in-law getting anything. Can't stand her. Okay, she doesn't have to. Because remember, you are in control of the corporate trustee up here and you can distribute discretionarily wherever it's used to go. And now here's the important thing. And this is the stronghold of why trust law is the, the best asset protection we've got in this country. Write this down. Write down. The beneficiaries have no present legal entitlement. Write that down. The beneficiaries have no present legal entitlement. So what that means is that the sister-in-law has no present legal entitlement over the asset of the trust and therefore can't get anything. Okay. Um, similarly, now oh, I'll come to that in a minute. So let's, let's just take that a step further. Because they've got no present legal entitlement, what that means is that if somebody comes along and sues anybody down here, including you, you have no present legal entitlement, therefore you can't attack, they can't attack the asset of the trust. If they sue the trustee, they can't get the asset of the trust because they take over the, the liability of the trust, but not the asset of the trust. And therefore they can't attack the asset of the trust. The only way that this asset could be attacked is if there is a direct attack on the, on the house itself. So that might be the burglar. It might be the fire hydrant or the rickety balcony or the back step or the whatever. It was a direct attack on the house. Okay, let's say that happens. Let's say we've got a $500,000 house with a $300,000 mortgage on it and they win a million dollar lawsuit. How much do they get? Give it to me in the chat room. How much do you reckon they get? Million dollar lawsuit, they win. $500,000 house, $200,000 mortgage on it. How much do they get? 200, says Cindy. First cab off the rank. 200 is the general consensus. That is correct. Because what happens is, the bank will, is always the first creditor. So, so, uh, so they have a secured mortgage. They'll always get their money first. The house will be sold. There's $200,000 left to get, which means there's $800,000 here still to get. Okay. Is that the end of it? No. What they can do is they can go up the line and sue the trustee. Now, if you're sitting there as personal trustees of your trust over here, and you've got other assets in your name, like your home or your whatever else, it's as good as useless. Do not ever, 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 ever have personal trustees of a trust that owns an asset because um, your personal assets are at risk if there's ever an attack directly on the asset of the trust. It can go up the line and take the trust. Always have a company. Do not trade in your company. One of the ways that they can, what we call, pierce the corporate veil and go up and take the assets of the director is if you are um, either fraudulent, well, you're not going to be fraudulent with a $2 shelf company that doesn't trade, or if you are trading insolvently. So do not trade. Do not have a bank account. Do not lodge a tax return. Don't do anything up here. It's just the legal entity behind the trust. The trust has the bank account. The trust does a tax return. The trust does everything down here. It is the entity that, um, that is, is doing the workings of whatever you're doing here. Word of warning, 
Do not name your children in the deed either. They are already included in the family group. They do not need their names in it because whoever is named as a, as a beneficiary down here can be deemed to be a primary beneficiary and therefore will be asked to sign the loan documents when you, you, you buy a property up here. I had a six-month-old being asked to sign loan documents. Ridiculous. Now, there's two very important positions in a trust you need to understand how they work. The first one is the settlor, S-E-T-T-L-O-R. Now, the settlor, um, there's three things you need to remember because if you don't get these things right, the whole thing's invalid and they can take the asset anyway. So here's what they are and I want you to write them down. One, they must not now or ever in the future be a beneficiary of the trust. That's the first thing. One, they must not now or ever in the future be a beneficiary of the trust. Um, I'll tell you a story about that while you write it down. There's a lady came to me um, at boot camp one year and she said, oh, I think I've stuffed up. I said, what have you done? She said, well, I bought this property and it's in a, it's in a trust a couple of years ago, um, like you said. And when I was buying it, my daughter was dating a lawyer. So I got him to set up the trust. I said, look, it should be all right. Just make sure it's right for the Bamford case. And she goes, yeah, I've got a lot. She said, but he made himself the settlor. Now he's getting, he's, they're getting married to my daughter next month. So doesn't that now make him one of the beneficiary group? And I'm going, yes. So this is, the whole thing's invalid. I'm going, yes. So well, what can I do? I said, there's only two things you can do. You can set up a new trust and you can, um, you can sell the asset into the new trust. It'll cost you stamp duty and capital gains tax. She said, my God, I can't afford that. She said, well, what else can I do? I said, break them up and don't let them get married. She took the first option. <laughs> It'll make you remember it anyway. The second thing is, is they must not witness any of the signatories to the trust. So the settlor must not witness any of the signatories to the trust because that can invalidate it. And the third thing goes back to ancient England. Now, in the 12th century, the knights of the land, if they went off to war and got killed, the king would resume their land holdings back to the crown. And they, the family was left penniless. If they didn't go to war, they were tried for treason, killed, and the king would take the land. So either way, the family was penniless. So what they did was they came up with this thing called no beneficial ownership. So the family collectively owned the land, but nobody individually did. Now, that was the birthplace of trust law in Australia. And obviously, we get our laws from England. We've changed them a bit over the years. These days, we don't settle land holdings into a trust. We have this 10 or 20 bucks, typically, which is called the settlement funds. Now, here's what I want you to write down. The settlement funds must be a gift or a donation. They cannot be invoiced for or exchanged for goods and services. Write that down. The settlement funds must be a gift or a donation. They cannot be invoiced for or exchanged for goods and services. There was a case back in the 70s where a farmer, he was a sheep farmer, he owned a, a farm in his trust and he went bankrupt. The trustee in bankruptcy tried to crack the trust, break it. They subpoenaed everything they possibly could. Now, one of the things that they subpoenaed was the original invoice that the accountant used to set up the trust. And there on the invoice, it had so much to set up the the, the trust and $20 or whatever it was, might have been five shillings, I can't remember, well, it wouldn't have been back then, um, to, uh, for the settlement funds. That one line invalidated the whole trust. So the trustee in bankruptcy put himself as the director of the corporate trustee, distributed off the bankrupt beneficiary and the farm was gone. So remember those three things. One, they must not now or ever in the future be beneficiary of the trust. Two, they must not witness any of the signatories to the trust. And three, the settlement funds must be a gift or a donation. They cannot be invoiced for or exchanged for goods and services. Other than that, you can forget about the settlor. He's done his job. Probably the most important position in all of this is the appointor. Now, the appointor is the one who has the right to sack 
or appoint the trustee. Now, remember, the trustee says who gets what money. So this is a very important position. Do not let this out of your hands. So in my little example here, mum and dad are going to be co-appointers of, of the uh, trust. Or mum or dad, doesn't have to be both of them, but one mum or dad, mum and dad. Um, now, this is what you have to take care of for succession planning, because when you die, this doesn't. So you need to pass control of this to the next generation. So if you want this house to go to Johnny number one, you've got to either in your will, a codicil to the will, a denim to the will, a statement of intent with a will, make Johnny number one the appointer upon your death. Or while you're alive, you can actually make Johnny number one a co-appointer of the trust. So when you're dead and pushing up daisies, Johnny number one just puts himself up here as the director of the corporate trustee, distributes off to his family, no stamp duty, no capital gains tax, no waiting, no probate, and no contesting of the will, except in New South Wales, because they've got notional wills. So that's pretty jolly good, isn't it? This is the one that you are going to use the most. This is the most effective, the most practical trust structure for you to use for property. But I want to explain a couple of other trust structures for you. The next structure that I want to talk about is a thing called a unit trust. Now, as the name suggests, we've still got a trustee up here. So we put a company as a corporate trustee. But instead of having beneficiaries, you have unit holders. This is a fixed, uh, a fixed trust. So if there's a property in here, we'll say, and I own 50% of the units and you own 50% of the units, we effectively own half the house each. But here's the thing. You've got to protect the units. Because if you own those units in your name, it's as good as useless. Somebody can come along and sue you, take those units away from you, and therefore they own half the house. You've got to protect the units in a no beneficial environment. And the only way to do that is with the discretionary trust. So you've actually end up with a three-tiered structure where the ownership is down here. These are not used a lot unless you've got a lot of people coming together to buy something together. And typically, you know, in a practical sense, probably four to six to more, you're going to use a unit trust. Um, below that, you'll probably use a discretionary trust. In most cases, it's going to be discretionary. Big unit, unit trusts like the uh, commercial listed and things like that, they will use a unit trust because they've got thousands of people and they can have different ownerships of different values and all of that kind of stuff. Okay, the next type of trust that I want to talk to you about is called a hybrid trust. So in a hybrid trust, as the name suggests, it is a hybrid of the two. So again, we've got a company up here as a corporate trustee. We've got units like we have in a unit trust, but we've got beneficiaries like we do in a, in a, a family trust. These are the bee's knees. Um, these are fantastic. They've got all the bells and whistles and everything else. But remember this, do not use these for property. There's only two banks that will lend to a hybrid trust. Every bank will lend to a discretionary trust. Do not use these for property. Um, in, I love them for business. I'm going to put business up here. Business hybrid trust. Because you've got the ability to be able to separate out the units into income only units. So if you had a valuable employee, you can share in the profits, but not the ownership. And capital units, you can have different ownerships. You can have all of those sort of things, but you've still got the benefits of being able to distribute anywhere you want for tax purposes. Only use them for businesses. Do not use these for property. There's one particular accounting firm, they even try and hide it by saying they're property trusts, um, but they've got units and they've got beneficiaries. They are hybrid trusts. There's only two banks that lend to hybrid trusts. 
it, when, you, when you're trying to do property, the last thing you want to be doing is restricting lending. That's just going to tie you up in all sorts of knots. Okay, so let me show you how this stuff comes together. Now, look, if you're going to go out and buy three properties, we'll say, here's my three properties. Should we put it in a discretionary trust? Who thinks that's the right thing to do? Give it to me in the chat room. Who, is that the right thing to do? We've got them all protected in, this, in the discretionary trust. We got that? No, no, no. A few yeses coming in. Okay, write this down. Whatever you group together dies together. Do not have ownership in the one structure because whilst it might be protected from other assets out here or you down here, whatever is grouped together dies together. Anything happens on one of them, you'll lose the lot. Don't do that. So here's what you'll do. I'm going to go and buy this property. I need a discretionary trust to put it in and I need a corporate trustee to be the legal entity behind it. That little unit there is going to cost you around $2,000, certainly with my professionals. Other professionals will charge you more than that, but that is what we charge for, um, for, one, for one structure to own one property. When you go and buy your next property, it doesn't have to be at the same time, you're going to need another, another discretionary trust and you're going to need another corporate trustee and you go and buy another one over here, same sort of thing. So in my little example here, I'm buying three properties. Now, I just want to show you how these things work for tax purposes. The first one here, let's say you bought this one before me and it's negatively geared. Let's say it's negatively geared $20,000 a year. This one here is positively geared $10,000 a year. And let's say that one there's zero for tax purposes, just to give us a figure. So if this was the case, trusts are pass-through vehicles. They don't pay tax in their own right, or at least you don't want them to because they'll pay tax at, at the top marginal tax bracket. So you don't want that to happen. They're pass-through vehicles. So they pass the profits down to the beneficiaries to pay tax but you can't pass down a loss. This loss is trapped in there indefinitely. You don't lose it. And it can be offset against future profits, even against the sale further down the track. But the, um, the, the, this cannot be used to offset against your salary and wages for negative gearing. Can't happen. However, if you've got the right words in your trust deed, you can take the income from this one distribute it up into that one. So that one's now zero for tax purposes. And this one here is now a carried forward loss of uh, $10,000, okay? So that you need the right words. Now, write these words down because here's the words that you need to have in your trustee. Write this down. Able to distribute to associated entities. That's what needs to be written into your trustee. Able to distribute to associated entities. So um, that, you know, you're, you're making the most efficient use of the money that you've got here. If you are in business for yourself, you'd set up another business up here and you would run your business out of that. Let's say we earn $100,000 in our business after tax and other things, uh, not after tax, after um, expenses and superannuation wages, whatever. Now, the first thing we would do is we would enact that same thing. So we'll take $10,000 off there, leaving us $90,000 to do something with. We would then take that ninety that that ten thousand dollars, sorry, distribute it down here, and that one now becomes zero for tax purposes. So we've evened out the uh, the ownership. Now someone's got to pay tax on this ninety thousand dollars. Okay, so if all of your individuals in this financial year are earning more than forty five thousand um, dollars, they're going to be on a higher tax bracket than a company. So we want a company to pay the tax because it's the lowest tax bracket, other than superannuation. You can put the super as well. But let's say it's a company. 
do you think we should give it to this one, this one, this one, this one, or should we even it across all four? Give it to me in the chat room. Which one should we give it to? Because the company's going to pay a lower amount of tax. So should we give it to one of these or should we even it across all four? Lots of evening, um, lots more evening, couple this one, that one. No, 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 no. I've tricked you. Do not give it to any one of these. Because remember I said before, do not trade in your corporate trustee. One of the ways that you can, can pierce the corporate fail and go up and attack your personal assets is if you are trading insolvently. So don't trade. Don't have a bank account. Don't lodge a tax return. If you give these any, any money, you're doing all of those things. So what you need to do is set up a new company. I tricked you. I, I did. I did on purpose. I tricked you. So you're going to set up a new company. Now, this company I call a bucket company. Okay. There's no such thing as a bucket company. It's just the name I made up. But you, you treat it like a bucket. So the money here, this 90000 will go up there. 90,000. So this is no tax here, no tax here, no tax here, no tax here. Up here, it's going to pay tax on the 90,000. So um, look, I'm just going to use 30 cents in the dollar because I can work it out of my head. The actual tax rate is lower than that for a company at the moment. It's about 26 cents, but I'm going to use 30 cents in the dollar. Let's say we pay 30 cents in the dollar. That's $27,000 tax, which gives us $63,000 tax paid money. Now the real name for this is a corporate beneficiary. I just called a bucket company. So now with our, our, our little entity up here, what we've actually done is we've created tax paid money. This is like our own little merchant bank. We can lend that money out to other structures to go and buy more property. So if we want to go and buy another property down here, we put that in another discretionary trust with a corporate trustee on top. And here's where it gets really cool. What we can do is we can lend that $63,000 down here on a proper loan agreement documented as the deposit plus the cost to buy that property. A bank is going to come in here and lend you the, the other 80%, we'll say, uh, from there. So this bank, this property here is actually 100% geared because it's the money to the bank and there's the money up here on a proper loan to you. So if this is the one that has the rickety balcony, the fire hydrant, the burglar, whatever, and that's the one that gets sued, how much do they get? Give it to me on the chat room. How much do they get? How much do they get? Nothing. Zippo. That's exactly right. Because, because it's 100% geared. So what you end up with is the bank will get its money first. You're the next secured creditor. This is your company, remember? You're, you're, the, you're the bank that's lent out the 20% deposit. So you're the bank up here. It's protected. There's nothing to get. Now, the great part about this is over time, what you're going to see is money going backwards and forwards across the structures, money coming down from the business, money going up there to pay tax, money coming down here to go and buy, uh, to go and buy more structures down here, go and buy more property and more structures like that with corporate trustees and another one down here and another strategy, et cetera, et cetera. So what you end up with is loan agreements going backwards and forwards like that. <laughs> is that not the sexiest thing you've seen all morning? <laughs> It should be. It should be. Now, look, I know I've gone through that fast. And I know for some of you said, oh, my God, you've lost me. If you're listening to this for the first time, that's expected. Don't, don't be scared about this. Understand that you need to have asset protection. It is, it is very complicated. And there is a lot of misinformation out there. There are people who will tell you to do things in the asset protection space that will cause a capital gains tax event immediately. 
um, particularly in the protection of existing assets. And uh, there's a ticking time bomb. The tax office is very aware of it. If you've got a lot of properties in your name, some people out there will say, I'll oh, just pop it, you know, give it, give it all to a trust. We do up these documents. That's all you need to do. Well, that's not accurate because, um, and, and, and I'll prove it to you. If you go to the ATO website, www.ato.gov.au, if you want to be proven, show why I'm saying these things. Uh, if you go to December and you go to private rulings, December of 2018, private rulings, there is a, a ruling there. One of our students um, was tempted to go and do this particular thing. They've given it a particular name, named after a, a uh, family in the UK who boasted about not paying tax and ended up in jail. But I don't know why they called it that, but they did. Um, and uh, this particular document was one of their, their trusts. Um, it causes a capital gains tax event. And uh, the private ruling says that. I think if uh, Michael or somebody could pop up, there they go, they've got it in the private ruling. You can look it up for yourself in the chat room. The document's there. Uh, read it for yourself. It is very, very dangerous. What you need is a professional team around you to help you with this stuff, regardless of your circumstances. I mean, you know, you don't need all of this on day one. There, there, there's, a, there's a process here that you'll go through and um, you, you need to make sure that every step that you're taking is protecting what you're developing into the future, but also protecting what you've done in the past. And you probably made mistakes in the past. I get that. It can be corrected, but there's a lot of misinformation about there how to protect it. Um, which, which we can rectify for you. I've got professionals all around the country to help you with that stuff. So another thing that I have, oh, this is just in the, the workbooks, and they're saying if you want the workbooks with all this stuff, you, you, really should, you really should pay your 47 bucks and get it. So a typical structure might look something like this. There's my three properties. There's my uh, three trusts, I mean, with my three properties in them. Now, when you set up a company, somebody has to be the shareholder of that company. So um, you don't even want to own the shares in those corporate trustees in your own name. So, you know, if you own those shares in your name, I could, I sued you and I won, I could asset strip those trusts as quick as look at you. So you need to protect the ownership. The only way to do that is in a uh, self, is, is in a, um, a discretionary trust. Now, this particular discretionary trust, I call a piggy bank trust. There's no such thing as a piggy bank trust. I just made it up. But in this particular trust, it's the only one that I am happy for you to have personal trustees of. Because if you put a company up here, then who's going to be the, the um, you know, who's going to own the shares in that? It's a chicken and an egg scenario. This is the end of the line. This is your ultimate piggy bank. If you are in business, you'd have another structure over there. And again, its shares in the corporate trustee would be owned in the piggy bank trust. When you get to a stage for tax purposes, you don't need it before that, but for tax purposes, you're going to need a bucket company down here. Its shares are also going to be owned in the piggy bank trust. And it will lend money across to other structures to go and buy more, more, um, more property. Clear as mud, right? <laughs> Look, I said there's a lot to learn in this space, and there is. This is just one little snippet of the, um, the Property Genius Blueprint that we've been talking about, the formula to follow. This is one tiny little piece um, it's, not even the, it's not even the full uh, accelerator. It's just one little piece of it to let you understand just how, how much there is to put in place. Many of you don't even, didn't even think about this beforehand, but it is vitally important. You know, broke but still controls $40 million worth of property. Um, this is how they do it. This is exactly how it's done. Bondi, when he went broke in the 80s, 
Um, you know, he owned $60 million worth of assets, but he'd been through the criminal law courts, the bankruptcy courts, and the divorce courts, and he still owned $60 million worth of assets. Okay, so asset protection, money management, debt management, tax management, there's a lot to learn, as you can see. And what I've done here is I've only just touched the top of the iceberg. That's it. There is so much more to learn in this space, which is why, you know, the, my gorgeous students in I Love Real Estate understand the importance and they implement this stuff every single day in everything that they do, not just in real estate, but in business and in shares and, you know, anything else that they might be getting into. This stuff is so important. Look, on the next series, I'm going to be talking about one of the, the other primary factors that you need to have included in your business plan, and that, of course, is cash flow. So I'll see you on that one.